What's going on, everybody? My name is Sean O'Brien. This is episode 12 of Maker Hub, a podcast focused on entrepreneurship, design thinking, and all things innovation. Today, I'm here with the University of Pittsburgh's 18th Chancellor, Pat Gallagher. He oversees a community of more than 34,000 students and 13,000 faculty and staff members across five distinct campuses, all working to advance Pitt's mission to make the world a better place through knowledge, learning, and scholarship. Chancellor Gallagher holds a bachelor's degree in physics and philosophy from Benedictine College in Kansas and a PhD in physics from the University of Pittsburgh. I might be a little bit biased, but today's episode is definitely a good one. So um, in the bit of research I did, this my understanding is that this is not your first time here in Pittsburgh. Your mom is from Pittsburgh, I believe. Yeah, uh, pretty deep uh, half roots, at least, in Pittsburgh. So mom was from uh, Pittsburgh. She grew up here, so I had her extended family in the area. My dad was from Philadelphia, and so I had my dad's extended family there. And somehow we managed to... Uh, they managed to go out to New Mexico and raise me there. So I was always coming back to Pennsylvania every summer just because that's where all the family were. Right. And you like it here in Pittsburgh so far? Love Pittsburgh. Yeah, it was always a favorite city of mine. And um, I think that's what attracted me, you know, to come here as and do my graduate work here. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, I kind of added on to that legacy, you know, had developed my own memories, right? And uh, had a great time here at Pitt. Kind of a life-changing time. And... Uh, you know, met uh, my wife here, and we got married here, and had a great group of friends. So it was, you know, like a lot of Pittsburghers who had to leave for various reasons. Uh, we always want to come back, and so it's been pretty special to come back to your alma mater and to right. a place that we love so much. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been fascinated um, by the just speaking to people who have been in very unique roles. I would consider a chancellor being a very unique role, and that um, I don't know that many people plan. That, that that's their end goal, right? So take me take me through the process and the kind of storyboard of how you became chancellor and, and was when, when did that become the goal or was it ever the goal to become chancellor? No, it was not really a specific goal. I think, you know, the those kinds of positions are fairly unique. And, um, uh, you know, it might have been different if I had a more traditional background in the academy, right? If I had been a professor and then maybe a, a an academic administrator than a chancellor might have been a desirable goal. Mm-hmm. But most of my career um, was always a little bit of a surprise. I, I actually came to Pitt because I love teaching. I taught high school for a year, and um, but I thought I'd, I'd want to teach at a college level, so I wanted to get my doctorate, and um, and I still have never taught since doing that, right? <laughs> so what happened was I discovered I loved research and ended up having uh, – I guess in hindsight, it was a surprising career, but an incredible, you know, career doing uh, research, um, first as a postdoc for a couple of years in Boston, then uh, with the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And and that uh, position at NIST was also a surprise because I thought I was just going to be a scientist and ended up, you know, becoming um, a manager and then eventually an agency head and leader and then um you know, the, the uh, number two official basically in the commerce department. And that was kind of in a funny way what led me back to Pitt. Mm-hmm. But um, you would never 
plan a career like that, right? right to get right, back here, right? So, what is what's in the head of twenty six year old Pat Gallagher? Like, what are you thinking about? What are you trying to do? What are your kind of next steps? Twenty six to thirty year old Pat Gallagher, right? So, you know, initially you said you wanted to be a scientist, right? Continuing down that down that road, but what was the what was the ideal case scenario? Well, you know, at that time, um, you know, coming out of your graduate work, you're trying to, um, in some ways, um, lay your own foundation, right? That that transition from student to, you know, an independent researcher is one where it's now your own ideas, your mm-hmm. own funding, that own independence. And so I was certainly very focused on that transition. How do I stand up on my own and very quickly develop that research program and have, you know, that others will be dependent on me. Um, there's also, that's the time of your life where you're still, you know, you're still defining yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, as I said, you know, uh, it was probably at that time, you know, meeting my, what was to become my wife and starting a family and doing all those kinds of things. Um, and to be honest, even though I knew I loved research, I probably, um, coming from a very small college, I had really not had much experience with research. So in many ways, I was still finding out the full range of activities that could be done in that field. So uh, a lot of that was about um, keeping doors of opportunity open. Um, you know, the funny thing about your post-graduate uh, phase coming off a doctor is very often you're in temporary positions. So, you know, I was in a two-year postdoc, and actually when I started NIST, that was another temporary assignment. So you're kind of looking for what you're going to do after mm-hmm. that assignment already. Right, so. right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've been very interested in currently is just analyzing myself over the course of my four, now five years at the university and, you know, looking at my 18-year-old self in comparison to, you know, what I'm where I'm at now, it's a completely different story, but all of the influences, whether it's parents, friends, professors, whoever it may be, they're all saying to do something, right? And when you go to bed at night, you're the only one who has to live with whatever you're doing. And kind of watching that change of what you're going to be doing is something I've been fascinated by just within myself and I think within everyone, you know, especially looking at your core, like group of friends that from today, even you now to when you were 40 to 30 to 20, like how that has changed and how the people surround that you're surrounded by affect your life. And, um, you know, now that you're in the position you're in, I'm I'm sure you've, you've watched that. Or if, when you look back, you can see that transition be, be very clear. And what would you say is the, the biggest kind of change you've seen impact uh, your kind of professional growth over time? Well, there's a couple of things. So coming back to your point about that, you know, this finding yourself and setting goals. One realization I think that I've I've um, made that's been really helpful to me is when I was younger, I sort of had this view of there's this needle in the haystack kind of view that, you know, whatever you're going to do in the future is out there and you just have to find it. And it's a question of a right choice versus wrong choices. Mm -hmm. I think that's a myth. I I think that um, your talents, your interests, your abilities point to a whole set of possible futures. Um, And there's probably a whole bunch of different ways in which you can find a very satisfying, you know, uh, trajectory. And um, a lot of this is about keeping those doors of opportunity open. And 
I don't know whether the career I ended up having is the only one. I suspect, I'm certain it's not. Mm -hmm. I think there were many, but it's been a very fulfilling one. I think the other thing that's really helped me is um, in some ways, when you're younger, you tend to focus on what it means more for you. It's kind of a, it's a very natural thing. You're looking at your career and your life. And, but the funny thing is the most satisfaction actually comes when you're part of something that's bigger than you. Mm -hmm. And it sounds kind of corny, but some of the most, the biggest satisfaction in my government career and my, the biggest satisfaction in my role as chancellor is that I'm part of a great institution with an, an amazing mission. And that ability to kind of um, be dedicated to serving that is actually really fulfilling in itself. It mm -hmm. has nothing to do with you. Right. It's just playing whatever role um, uh, that you can to do that. And, um, and finally, I will tell you that the, the difference maker uh, is always, and that's true no matter which of those paths you take, the difference maker is the people. Um, the people you meet, um, people that support you, that believe in you, that coach you, that you coach. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Particularly for somebody like you in a very technical line of work, we can be dazzled by all the technology and, and uh, toys, but right. it's still a people business, and right. that's really uh, where all the magic is. Right. You know, I think I 100% agree um, with the being a part of something bigger. You know, once I got into this makerspace role, my initial role was outreach. So I was just talking to companies, trying to get funding, um, just focusing on that. And as I transitioned into now running the makerspace, you know, watching someone use this platform to go do their own thing and become successful or do a product, like whatever, whatever they're completing, like that watching that process happen that has nothing to do with me but knowing that someone used what i helped build to then go doing their their own thing and find their passion and and whatever it may be like that is the most rewarding feeling i've, I've ever had and again it has nothing to do with me really i'm not right. i'm not gaining anything off of someone else's success but being able to see that happen is is fascinating yeah. so um let's let's take your position, for example, of, you know, you're, you're, you're the person who, who is kind of in control of what happens on this campus in terms of bettering the lives of the students, the faculty. Um, so my kind of initial understanding of who the chancellor is, is a firefighter, right? So, you know, you have to put out all of the bad first. I would say that that would be first and foremost, you need to handle just what's going on on that end. But how do you balance kind of pushing your initiatives and pushing your motives along with kind of just the day-to-day. -day. The day-to-day -day is busy enough. So how, how do you go above and beyond and kind of the reason you are in the chancellor position is because you had some vision. So I guess what is that vision initially and how has that changed over time? Well, you know, there's, uh, <clears throat> I think in a lot of positions, there's this mixture of proactive and reactive. And that, the, look, that balancing act is what consumes a lot of the day-to-day there's a tug of war between, you know, responding to things and proactively driving things. Um, you know, what, what centers you in the end is uh, the institution and the people in it and its mission, right? So if the institution needs you to be reactive, you know, there's a crisis, there's a safety issue, the well-being of the institutions at stake, the right thing to do is you drop everything else and you tackle that. On the other hand, if all you do is is chase emergencies and you're not helping the institution move forward, you know that's that's what sets the table for future opportunities, right? So, 
Um, you always fight for that proactive side as much as possible, but you have to know when you uh, it's important to, to, to you know, kind of step back and, and uh, you know, take the time to react to something. I, you know, the way I view the job is, is uh, one way to, to share it with you is to tell you a story. So um, one of the programs I uh, had the privilege of supporting when I was at NIST was the Malcolm National Quality Award program. So the Baldrige Award is given uh, to companies and organizations that are considered the best in the world at what they do. It's kind of like being winning, uh, you know, the a beauty pageant. If they win, these companies are expected to go and share what that what made them great with other institutions, mm-hmm. so that you know we kind of all get better. And and a lot of originally these were a lot of manufacturing companies, but it had moved really into healthcare and education. So I was in California visiting one of the Baldrige winners, and it was a hospital system. And I remember I was meeting with the entire management team, and they were talking about their. Uh, Baldridge success and how they had gotten there. And I'll never forget the CEO said, you know, Pat, you have to remember one thing about a hospital system like ours. And that is that the, the key personnel in the whole equation, namely the physicians don't work for us. They choose to practice here. So our job as a hospital leadership team is to create the environment where Mm -hmm. the best physicians choose to practice. And if you think about a university, that's a great analogy because that leadership role that you talked about sort of being in charge of everything is a, is a very misleading concept because the action in a university is driven by the faculty and the students. Right. Uh, that's what we're here for. And so what my job is, is to create the best conditions so the best faculty and the best students in the world want to, want to come here. Mm-hmm. And practice. So it's very much a service uh, model. And it kind of gets to your question, you know, what are the issues? Well, it's whatever shapes that environment, Um, you know, attracting folks here, creating that collaborative open spirit, the facilities, the resources, the services. In some cases, it's knowing when to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. So folks can do their job. In some cases, it's knowing where we can provide a support uh, and and uh, just help make that challenge easier. So, you know, I kind of, I it's a great position because, you know, I've got, you know, a small city of some of the most creative people on the planet doing these amazing things. And I get to run around figuring out how to, I can support them and champion it. I, it's like living vicariously through 50,000 uh, geniuses. It's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, I, after spending this summer in Silicon Valley, you know, I didn't realize how much of a tech hub Pittsburgh really is. And and watching the startup ecosystem, of course, is massive in Silicon Valley. That's what it's known for and, and tech. But when I came back and I and I drove down center and saw Google and I even drove down um, fifth and can see on the second level of building some of the startups that I've that I've watched grow um, during my time here and really start to understand, you know, something's happening in Pittsburgh and with CMU here, with Pitt here. You know, something is going to really change over time. And, you know, in one of your earlier uh, interviews this year, you had mentioned about what's happening in Silicon Valley in terms of the economic uh, disparity. And, you know, in, in San Francisco, the homeless population is insane. I mean, you take a drive through there and it's 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 
depressing, really. So do you think that as we com- become a, uh, a stronger tech hub, that we're going to have some of those bigger issues within the city? And then how does the student basis change? Do we become a more technical, um, more science focused and engineering focused school than, than we already are? How, how does that, that change? Yeah, I, I, this is something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about. I, you know, the traditional story of entrepreneurship in the United States has a couple of um, fallacies to it. So one is that it's the the single actor, right? The hero in their garage who does something by themselves, and and then all these great things follow. So there's two problems with that myth. One is it's almost never one person by themselves. It's always a team and, and, and an idea built on other people's ideas. And you talk to any real entrepreneur and they acknowledge that. It's not this single you know, genius. And that sort of cowboy mentality of how this works sometimes distorts people's expectations in a real way. The other one that's, that's there in that same you know, story or mythology is that all you have to do is come up with the invention and all the great things follow. And I think one of the mistakes that's been made is to think about the economic side of entrepreneurship, right? Entrepreneurship is really just about taking an idea and making something. That act of creativity in addressing a need from an underlying understanding is is a very natural thing for a university to do. We're here to make the world better through knowledge. Mm-hmm. This is about turning knowledge into utility. But we have this sort of build it and they will come view of what all you have to do is worry about getting the technology out there, get it commercialized, you're done. And in my mind, the Silicon Valley slash San Francisco Bay Area story is kind of the the view of what can happen there, that there is a lot of amazing companies. There's no question. Um, But that isn't the whole picture because not everybody is participating in that economy that's being created. And that's – and in my view, what what has to happen now is we can't simply have the luxury of doing a build it and they will come. So that's a challenge. But I will tell you, um, because maybe because I'm – you know, here is a part of a comprehensive university, in that challenge is a huge opportunity. Because I don't believe anyone has really put their arms around how to do a comprehensive, what I would call place-based strategy. So mm-hmm. how do we take ideas coming out of a university like Pitt? Yes, go ahead and generate new products and services and exciting new companies. But then go farther and think about if those companies are cited here in a Pittsburgh neighborhood, how do we create pathways for people who live there? new people who are going to come in, and how do they participate in that? Maybe it'll be directly in that tech company. Maybe it's in the whole ecosystem of economic activity that will surround that company, right? Because companies want to be in a place where workers can work, live, and play. Mm-hmm. And that in itself creates enormous opportunity. I think that that lack of intention around a really comprehensive strategy is what can lead to these very uneven outcomes. And I don't think anyone solved that problem. This isn't a case of copying Silicon Valley. (laughs) This is a case of being a pioneer. And Pittsburgh is a great place to do it. Um, One of the magic ingredients of Pittsburgh is how much civic pride and ownership there is, Mm -hmm. right? These these neighborhoods are real, right? right? This is our city. This is our... So you can leverage that. And, you know, 
we're trying to work with actual neighborhoods in the city now to create community engagement centers. So we have a physical platform to sit side by side with community leaders and figure out if, if these companies, let's say in the healthcare arena, want to come in and do these amazing things, that's great. But how do we go the, the next step? What would happen if they were here? How do we try to find ways where, you know, the existing residents of that neighborhood might participate? What does it mean for um, folks who are going to move into Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. want to, you know, relocate here or students who are graduating who want to stay here? I think that's going to be really uh, exciting and uh, something we're perfectly positioned to be a leader. Yeah, that's that's an interesting take. You know, um, I almost always or only thought about replicating Silicon Valley. I never really thought about, you know, analyzing how we can change what they've already done. And I think Silicon Valley, I don't think Silicon Valley expected to be Silicon Valley. You know, um, things kind of just very, very quickly boomed out there and it is what it is now. Right. And, you know, uh, like what you said, now we're in an interesting position of we see what's wrong and we're we have the time and the resources to change that and do what's right. Um, and that's a, that's a very interesting take. But since it hasn't been done, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think that's going to be an interesting thing that starts to happen over the next few years. Within the next 10 years, I think something is going to be drastically different or something's going to be drastically different within um, Pittsburgh itself. So with that being said, in the realm of entrepreneurship, I've been curious about how academia plans to support that moving forward. Right. So if I'm someone who has been coding since I was four, Right. And, you know, I have no need to go to university. Um, I can go out and now Apple, I believe Microsoft and a couple other of the big tech companies out in Silicon Valley have said we don't require degrees anymore. So how does the landscape of academia change over time uh, in adapting to those fields that will no longer or may no longer require degrees? And overall education, how, what does that look like over the next 10 to 20 years in terms of the mindset of a graduating senior in high school? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of buzz about this, particularly, by the way, from Silicon Valley, where they tend to love to um, be disruptors, right? Mm-hmm. So you talk, there's a lot of discussion about hacking education and sidestepping college. And um, it's, it's useful to step back a little bit. So uh, the role of a university is not to simply provide uh, job-specific skills. It does some of that. You certainly... What, you know, the essence of a university is it's the first time in your educational background where you begin to specialize in something, right? So what's different from anything you had before was you narrow up, you pick a field, and you go deeper. The, the value of that certainly can be if you pick a field where you end up working that you pick up deeper knowledge. I'm not going to dismiss that. But the real advantage is educational. It allows you to learn differently. Um, in fact, if you think of graduate school, you get infinitely narrow and infinitely deep, <laughs> right, right, right? To the point where you become an expert in a particular area. That mode of learning is different. So we have made a mistake, I think, by getting very sloppy about talking about the skill and knowledge acquisition that happens and this, you know, learning how to think and be a problem solver. You know, if you look at the correlation between degrees conferred by a university and where people work, there is no one-to-one mapping. Mm-hmm. 
Um, take our engineers and you look at where pit engineers graduate. It is certainly true that over half would go into an engineering related field. Only half. Where are the others going? Well, they're going to very, you know, the placement rate is 97%. So they're getting work and they're doing all sorts of related things. But and so those that that knowledge and learning how to learn and, mm-hmm. you know, all these other things that ha- are happening here are still relevant. Um, I always talk about our philosophers. You know, we have one of the top philosophy programs in the world. Okay, where are they going to work, right? People want to sort the world into good degrees and bad degrees. Our philosophers are being incredibly successful. Their placement rate is almost as good as engineering. Mm -hmm. So where are they going to work? They're going to work everywhere. The only difference really is that visualizing those career possibilities within a philosophy department is a lot different than visualizing within an engineering department because of this assumption of where most people are going. Mm -hmm. So the faculty in engineering might be more useful employment, you know, consultants than the philosophers are, Mm -hmm. but that's not the same thing. So going back to the story about coders, the reality has always been that in certain jobs that are skill dependent, that the acquisition of those skills has always been the primary thing. And that's true whether it's coding, um, whether it's welding, plumbing. But I mean, all of these here, these are all in, incredibly valuable. Um, and the, the workforce is always going to recognize that. And in some ways, when it's a skill-dependent occupation, that does always has always taken mm-hmm. precedence. But I will also tell you what I've heard from, let's say, Microsoft um, hiring officials, um, that they are often shying away from pure technologists because they're looking for people who can operate in a large organization, can be problem solvers, can work across boundaries, be creative, be part of design teams. You're not going to get that from a skills program. Mm -hmm. So again, I think, you know, this sorting of it's this or it's that isn't right. It may turn out that you you go to college and you get a skills-based training somewhere, whether that's within the university or something you augment. Um, if that's what that job requires. But um, there's a lot more to the success of Silicon Valley than just pure coders, right? Right. Um, And if you look at what those companies are really doing in Microsoft and Google and others, the reality is they're valuing, uh, yeah, they may have a critical shortage and they're talking about coders one day, but they'll be the first to tell you they didn't build their company's success on a pure technology viewpoint. Right, right. You know, I think that's what if if we have to throw people in bins, right? I think it's I think it's wrong to do it in terms of major and and, and rather do it in terms of ways of thinking. You know, the philosophy, the person who goes down the philosophy route has a very different way of thinking. Right. And that way of thinking can be utilized in various different roles and various different organizations. Like you said, the, the placement, you know, the question of where are they going to work? There is no. Well, here's the answer. It's it's when, when you look at that, that whole, you know, where philosophers are going, it's their 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 way of thinking is being leveraged in a specific way. And I think that can benefit across the board in terms of a diverse team, in terms of, you know, I think those are, that's where successful companies come from is that basis of diverse kind of ways of, of thinking. Creative people, business people. Um, you know, one interesting thing is, you know, we, as humans, we often lay out categories and bend things. Right. right? 
So a university is no different. We have bend ourselves according to this specialization. So we have an organization that's largely along the degrees we confer. But it's interesting, if you look at the world of research or if you look at the world of entrepreneurship and any of these other activities, that's not what's happening. If you look inside an entrepreneurial team, what you have is a group of people that are focused on whoever can contribute to that team's success. Right. Um, if you look at a research effort, you know a PI is not going to simply stick within their department if the challenge is big and requires. So the idea of... of problem-centered organizations, right, that um, are, are optimized to, you know, creating a new company or running an existing one well or being innovative mm-hmm. or, you know, prov- providing health care or creating incredibly new things always leads to a very different construct. And it always involves, I think, the real the real energy of a university, just as the real energy in a lot of these organizations, doesn't come from within people who think the same. It's often at the friction between people with very different perspectives. Um, you know, the the classic entrepreneur experience, uh, even for small startups, is the intersection between the technologist and the consumer. Right. And mm-hmm. managing that very different viewpoint about what you're actually trying to do if you're going to create value in a marketplace. That's a completely different way of thinking. Right. And that's often one of the points where the whole effort really crystallizes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's actually valuable um, to remember that just as an intrinsic thing. But I also have to tell you as an educator, you know, particularly, again, in universities, the other thing we do is we do a lot of uh, experience-based learning. It's a great learning environment because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's how things really work, right? And you want that back and forth between folks with different backgrounds. Right, right. So I guess the main question coming off of that discussion is how do we cultivate that kind of community of diverse, you know, taking the philosopher, taking the business student, taking someone, taking one you know, a couple of people from various different fields and, and how do you bring them all together and, and help them understand the possibilities that are, you know, really right in front of you right. if you take advantage of it? How does that, I mean, I guess, how does, how has Pitt played into that? And how do you see moving forward that, that changing, especially as Pittsburgh becomes more entrepreneurial? Well, again, we talked about, you know, my job is to sort of create the environment where these great things can happen. Um, Sometimes the best role is is how do I get out of the way? So um, reducing friction. Are there things that are preventing people from getting together in that kind of creative way? Mm-hmm. Is certainly one of the things we look at. A lot of time being looked at, you know, um, what are obstacles to collaboration and partnership? You know, what are the things that prevent somebody working within the university from maybe moving out of the university with an idea and starting something up? You know, you have to pay attention to those. The details matter, but often um, you can end up taking a risk avoidance mindset and just creating fences rather than what I would call a risk management approach saying, okay, that's, you want to do that. Let's come up with a plan so we can manage the risk and Mm -hmm. do it. So that's part of just lowering friction. It's it's a necessary but not sufficient condition, right? People are busy. You know, these you know we're studying, we're getting degrees, mm-hmm. we're doing all these things. Something has to create the magnet effect to pull people together, and I think that's largely at the student and faculty level, and it and it tends to be an idea. People get together to 
accomplish something together. Um, and there, I think my role is really much more of um, a champion and cheerleader. Um, not, I'm certainly not going to point to what the right ideas are in the right. university, but to say, let's let's challenge ourselves to think of bigger ideas. Because I think sometimes if, if we're thinking on the, on the scale of what we can fund for an individual grant, you're not going to create a big enough idea where you really pull people together in big teams. And my view is a great university challenges really great problems, mm -hmm. the big, hairy, audacious problems. And so some of that is really uh, encouraging that and making sure that we have some of the support services that can help people think really big, maybe big centers. Maybe we're going to tackle sustainability. Maybe we're really going to look at food security. Maybe we're going to look at, you know, public health and new ways of providing health care. Maybe it's, um, you know, societal inequity. Uh, you know, uh, all of these things are tough um, and they almost always demand uh, very broad and creative teams. Mm -hmm. So a combination of getting out of the way and championing is uh, probably the the most common way we have of encouraging this. Yeah. I mean, our primary focus within the makerspace is to cultivate that community. And, you know, when you talk about lowering the amount of friction that, that is, that, that prefaces that, you know, we're in the basement of the engineering building. No one's going to stumble into this, this space. So, you know, now we're at the, in the position to how do we create challenges and how do we create problems and, and how do we how do we give a reason to students to want to come here? And, you know, that's something that we're actively, actively trying to figure out. But when that does happen, it's crazy that how different the outcome is to when you only have technical people here trying to solve a problem. And someone comes in who, who has never, who has never even been surrounded by a technical environment. And they say, well, what about this? And everyone goes, Oh man, right. you know, you didn't even think of that. So um, I think it's fascinating to to watch that occur, but actively trying to identify ways in which we can um, con continuously approve that. And that's a place where creativity is really the name of the game. I mean, you know, everyone talks about you know going to a Google you know you know facility and how different it feels. Well, why is that? That's because they're using a bunch of creative tricks to try to get people to collaborate, right? Mm -hmm. So they're using space, cool spaces. They're using food. <laughs> right. They're using all sorts of things to try to foster that. And that's true in a university as well. We're trying to think about space. Um, can we have, you know, maker spaces, libraries, create, you know, the Center for Creativity, design centers. The Idea Center now, too. All, right. All yep. of these things are deliberate attempts to create if you will, those kind of DMZs <laughs> right. between our traditional boundaries where people feel um, encouraged right. to take a little risk and work with folks that are they're not normally working with, right? We all need those kind of icebreakers. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things we can do on that encouragement side is to try to create um, those icebreakers. You know, an interesting example of that at a larger scale that we've been working on is a lot of the magic that happens in commercialized entrepreneurship, you know, where you're trying to commercialize an idea occurs at the intersection between a university, which is a nonprofit, right? Largely publicly funded entity and a business community. Mm -hmm. Well, if the university is an ivory tower and it views itself as trying to isolate itself from the world, you're not going to have a, a lot of interaction. So a lot of what we've been trying to do is to create that mixing zone. You know, where does a university rub shoulders with a business community? And 
one of the things we're doing is looking in the immediate vicinity of Pitt and asking, you know, is there room, is there an opportunity for some of our business partners who are working in areas that we care about? Remember, two-thirds of all the research and development done in this country is done by the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, what about those companies that want to be one cup of coffee away from us? Can they do that? You know, you drive up to a lot of universities, you drive through a business district that's, does that happen here? Not really, mm-hmm. right? So so we've been looking at innovation corridors and other things, working with the city and the county. And the reason that's important is this idea of creating that shoulder bumping between what we're doing and companies that are in a similar place. That's a very, doesn't mean we're going to be doing company work, but it's a very creative um, uh, interaction. And you just want to try to you know, maximize the number of collisions there. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, I think just, just getting out and, and during our, you know, our previous discussion of, you know, basically what's the ROI of education and how does that change over time? You know, the people you meet, you know, whether or not you can say it's worth the X amount of dollars per year in tuition is, is up to you, but the people you meet on this campus and in Pittsburgh in general is, is unreal if you put yourself out there. And I think getting over, I, I, I didn't really, I was, I was always kind of an extroverted person. So I never understood the, well, why not just go talk to other people? Why not just, mm-hmm. just get out and, and learn and, and learn from other people. And when you can get people over that hurdle and they start to see what all of this, all of this means, what every, what they're doing, what does it mean? You know, that, that kind of process is, is really fascinating because they've never been exposed to things. You know, everyone has a different upbringing. And I think the way that, you know, companies are defining is changing a little bit, but the way that they're defining diversity has been on very, again, distinct bins of either it's race or it's gender, whatever it may be. But diversity is, is such a wide kind of encompassing thing that we describe people as, you know, everyone comes from a very different background. And when you can harness that and get them out of their kind of bubble, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm you know, just good things happen. Well, I think, you know, it, it, there's always a lot of reasons behind these things. So, you know, some efforts really have to do with equity and what I would call structural lack of diversity, right? There are, there are clear underrepresented groups that we have and Silicon Valley's dealing with that. Now Uh, you were talking about the the West coast and that's both in terms of race and gender and, and other areas, right? So a lot of times when we're, talking about diversity, what we're talking about is addressing these chronic areas of underrepresentation because that can't be right. All right. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, human creativity is not sorted <laughs> right. that way. And so something is happening that's creating a distorted uh, playing field. But then there's also this other side of diversity, which is its own intrinsic value to what we're doing. And you're right. This is why for a university, questions of diversity is not a, a luxury. It's a little bit existential. This, I said our job was to create an environment mm-hmm. where the best people can thrive. Part of that environment is that opportunity to, to interact with folks from a different background, different expectations, different problem-solving approach, different fields of study. Right. Um, and so that's done with some intent. Um, the It's interesting that, you know, I think a lot of st- I was talking with the incoming freshman class a couple of weeks ago, and I think you come in, you know, with this kind of individual model, you know, it's about me going to class and me learning from a teacher and this kind of one unit, you know, one-on-one model of what happens. 
if you talk to graduating seniors, you know, on their last day, they never talk about that. What mm-hmm. they talk about is the community they built and how much they were influenced and driven by their peers, their classmates, their friends, the people they worked on projects with, the faculty. Um, I think that is one of the most interesting transformations that happens while you're here is that uh, going from a single actor to being part of a broader group. And I think, you know, things like entrepreneurship, you know, it is intrinsically a team sport and Mm -hmm. those teams learn that very quickly. Right. But but that's half the fun. Absolutely. All right. I know we're coming up closer on time, so I want to thank you for taking the time, of course. Um, And if there's anything you'd like to plug or really kind of throw into the mix here at the end of the podcast, the floor is yours. Well, um, I want to thank you for uh, the chance to, to chat about this. I, you know, for me, it, as I said, it, it sounds corny, but what makes this all tick is our core mission, right? And um, as human beings, we have been given, you know, this creativity and this capacity to learn, to work with each other, right? And to do amazing things. Um, a university is just an environment to make that really special. So, Uh, I guess my main message is, you know, nothing's off the table, right? Let's figure out how to do things uh, correctly. And, um, and uh, I actually think um, our best days are still uh, in front of us. I think that Pittsburgh is a special place. Uh, I think Pitt's a special place. I think Pittsburgh is special because of what Pitt is doing Mm -hmm. to a large extent. And uh, we're just getting started. So can't wait. All right. Thank you very much. All right.